Amen. The book of Numbers contains genealogical information. It contains different censuses. It contains details about marching orders and transporting items and tabernacle vessels. But in addition to these details, and there are many, uh, there is a lot of drama in the book of Numbers. Um, It is not a uh, tame account. In fact, the people of Israel do not come across as a tame and subservient group of people. They come across as fearful, rebellious, very fickle in their allegiances. We have seen various episodes of rebellion in the book of Numbers. We arrive at another episode of rebellion in Numbers 16. This chapter introduces a problem from the Levites. A man named Korah rebels. He has a rebellious spirit that not only he exhibits, but that others join in. We could We could say that Korah has a company of supporters. He has allies who are joining his cause and concern. They believe he has a right complaint, an instinct about the state of things that needs to be heeded and responded to. Now, there's no indication, like this morning was the same case, what year or time this occurred in their wilderness wandering. Uh, These events here took place after the pronouncement of 40 years of wandering, But more specific than that, we are not given details. Verses 1 to 3 tell us of a rebellion of Korah and others, and it reads like this. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. That's a lot of names. We can distill it down to this. Korah is given some genealogical background here. He is the son of Izhar. He is Izhar, the son of Kohath, and Kohath from Levi, who's one of Jacob's 12 sons. He is therefore an Israelite from Jacob's line, but not through Amram like Aaron and Moses. He comes through Kohath's line through Izhar. The reason this matters will be very clear with with Korah's specific complaints. But there is another group that are not from Levi. They're not on the board tonight, but they are from the tribe of Reuben. And their names are Dathan, Abiram, and On. Uh, Some of their more immediate ancestors are given, but they ultimately come from Reuben. We have then some trouble among Israelites. And they come from people who are from Levi's tribe and people who come from the tribe of Reuben. And it tells us in verse 2, here's what they did. They rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. We had four names given to us that were the contemporaries of Moses. A man named On, who's not repeated in any other verse beyond verse 1. A man named Korah, Dathan, Abiram. We now give a number here in verse 2, 250 supporters. This is a large group. It's not a small problem. Rather, hundreds of people are coming to ally together with whatever concerns Korah and the others have. And they're not nobody and unknown folks in the congregation. They are actually leading well-known folks. They are said to be of the assembly well-known men, which means The rebellion or the support of Korah from these folks is concerning because of the influence that they have on others in the Israelite camp. 
they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And they said to Moses and Aaron in verse 3, You have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy. Every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? We can get a sense here that their concern is about Moses and Aaron's leadership roles among the people. Moses goes to the tabernacle where the Lord speaks face to face with Moses. Of course, a metaphor for saying he discloses truth and commandments to Moses, his mediator. We also know that Aaron is the high priest of Israel. And the language is twisted in the minds of the people in verse 3. How then do you exalt yourselves? Or why then do you exalt yourselves? Is that how Aaron and Moses have wound up where they are? We're immediately realizing in verse 3, these people do not have a sense of the circumstances correct. They are imagining that Moses and Aaron are where they are doing what they are because they have exalted themselves. Well, Moses was in Midian when a burning bush and a voice from it told Moses he would deliver the people out of Egypt. Moses didn't go applying for this job. Neither did Aaron. I hear there's an opening in the high priest vocation. You know, I'm going to, there was nothing like that. They're appointed by God. Why do you exalt yourselves? We're immediately concerned about the way these people are seeing these circumstances. And yet we know that Moses and Aaron do have a prominent influence. These supporters of Korah seem to say, we don't think it's right that you have this influence when the whole congregation's been set apart by God. We're all holy. I think we're getting the impression that Moses and Aaron have a kind of authority that Korah and others resent. They resent it. They covet it. They resent it. And they look at this and they see it as unwarranted. Why have you exalted yourselves? Well, so with these concerns, they think that Moses and Aaron, as one writer says, have too much power and prestige in the camp. It tells us, I think, in light of uh, not the text itself, I'm talking about now it uh, being the scriptures um, unfolding narrative from Genesis forward. We can identify Korah and his allies as seed of the serpent in the midst of Israel's camp. We have among the Israelites, both believers and unbelievers, we can see the narrative here noticing the responses, the antagonism, the hostility. This is coming from hearts of unbelief. Korah and his supporters are the seed of the serpent coming against the seed of the woman, Moses and his people. Verse 4 says, when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. Then, of course, he would have responded with contrition, with lament, with frustration. Contrition is the wrong word, but lament and frustration, distress, coming before the Lord in prayer. And Moses, not having provoked this or having done anything wrong, is now on his face, likely in prostrate prayer to the Lord. And when he says the following words to Korah and his people, I think this is because the Lord has now revealed to the praying Moses what should happen. He says, here's what you're to do in verse 5. In the morning, the Lord will show you who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. See, the concern seems to be about the influence Moses and Aaron have had, especially Aaron's priesthood. I think that'll become clear soon. But 
what Moses is suggesting is, if you think that we have exalted ourselves, the Lord has said he will demonstrate whom he has appointed. So let God show us. And Nicor, if you if you claim that this authority and these positions and this leadership and this, if you think this ought to be yours, then the Lord will make that clear. And if it's not to be yours, but rather Aaron has been rightly appointed and not just self-exalted, then the Lord makes that clear too. So you come in the morning and the Lord will bring near to him whom he chooses. And here's what I want you to do in verse six. Take censers. And a censer here is probably to envision something with an opening on one end that's held by a handle held by someone holding the censer that inside can be some kind of incense or fire or coals. This incense, this censer, that goes together for the worship of of Israelites. And it tells us, take censers, Korah and all his company. Put fire in them, put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow, and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You've gone too far, sons of Levi. Now this act is inviting the Israelite tribes of of the, the rebels from Reuben and from Levi to come with a priestly posture. They've got censers, they've got incense, they're coming like priests. And I think Moses is saying, so those of you who want the role of priest, why don't you come with a censer to the tabernacle like the priests do, and we will see whom the Lord chooses. It is a way of of saying you want to act as the priests. Let's see how that works out for you. So you bring your censers tomorrow. And then Moses says in verse 6, You have gone too far, sons of Levi. He's using the words back to them, isn't he? Because earlier they had said, you have gone too far to Moses and Aaron. Moses' response is, actually, the one who is acting presumptively here, the one who is in some way uh, flaunting some kind of uh, desire and uh, appearance before the Lord, it's not Moses and Aaron here. You... Sons of Levi, you have gone too far. Therefore, these fire pans or censers are to have these live coals and incense for the worship of the tab- at the tabernacle. And Moses says, well, why don't you bring some tomorrow, you and everybody? Now, we know there are some names we thought of on Dathan, Abiram, Korah. He doesn't just mean four. He means all the supporters. The additional 250. We're talking about an extravagant number of people coming with priestly instruments, so to speak. And in verse 8... Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them and that he's brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? Would you seek the priesthood also? Moses' words to Korah here help us realize Korah's group, they have not been um, silent and stoic with the role of the tabernacle. Rather, they, Korah and his group, they are descended from Izhar, who are descended from Kohath. The descendants of Kohath are called the Kohathites. We could say then that Korah is a Kohathite. Now, what do we know about Kohathites? Earlier in Numbers... They are forming part of the inner ring of Levites within the 12 tribes that surround them, three tribes on each side. Reuben's tribe, they're on the south side. 
Also on the south side are the Kohathites. So what has begun to come to be cultivated within the camp are some people on the south side have come to rise in rebellion against Moses. Some people from Reuben, Dathan and Abiram and on, those are the three, Korah from the Kohathites, and he says to Korah in verses 8 and following, is it too small a thing what the Lord has given you? In other words, are you discontent with the way you are serving as a member of the tribe of Levi, Levites around, and not only that, Kohathites who helped to carry the tabernacle vessels in the march? It's not as if the Kohathites have nothing to do with the tabernacle. They work to guard. They work to support and help and aid the priests. They are key in transporting instruments and vessels during the march. And Moses says, Korah, is that just not good enough? Do you just look at what you're doing and you're saying, ah, you know, I just, I want what Moses does. I want what Aaron does. Moses says, do you seek the priesthood? Now, the reason he poses that question at the end of verse 10, the priests come from Aaron. And Aaron is a Kohathite, but Kohath has at least two children we need to know about. Amram and Izhar. This is where the division takes place. Kohath's sons through Amram become the priests. But not Kohath's sons through Izhar. Korah is Moses' cousin. And his uncle Izhar has had a son named Korah that wants the priesthood. And he says, is it too small a thing what the Lord has given you? And you look at the priesthood and you think, no, that is what I want. This is the interpretation Moses has about the actions of Korah. This is serious because Aaron and Miriam, Moses' brother and sister, had some grumbling against their brother Moses in Numbers 12. We've seen Israelites act in rebellion in chapter 13. Ten of the twelve spies, other Israelites who joined in. We've seen in Numbers chapter 15, an Israelite, or likely, one, he wasn't called an Israelite, but a violator of the Sabbath, most likely an Israelite, and then is punished by the death penalty. It is quite striking that people at this point, knowing what has happened, knowing pronouncements of the Lord, knowing commands of the Lord, would very recklessly come against the leadership of the Israelites. It's quite something. And then in verse 11, he says, Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and your company have gathered. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? Now, I don't think that's meant to be a shot at Aaron. If Aaron's there, he might look at Moses and say, what do you mean? What is Aaron? You know, I mean, come on. But I don't think this is meant to be a, a, you know, a diminishing of Aaron. It's to say, who put Aaron where he is? So if you're grumbling against Aaron and you're seeking the priesthood, who are you ultimately opposing? That's why he says in verse 11, it's against the Lord that you and your company have gathered. Well, that's no safe place. It reminds me of Psalm chapter 2, when the nations gather against the anointed one, the Lord. Now, in in Psalm chapter 2, some preachers and scholars have pointed out that the anointed one in Psalm 2 is the king. But you see, the priest was also anointed by God. He is also someone who's anointed, not because he's from the tribe of David or is the Messiah figure or foreshadowing in that sense uh, as clearly as kings would. But here you have in verse 11, gathering together against the Lord. They might not think that's what they're doing. That doesn't change the fact that that's what they're doing. Gathering against the Lord, you and all your company. What's Aaron? Think that you think you're just opposing him? No, no, no. This is worse, Korah, than you realize. Verses 12 to 14 are Moses' words to Dathan and Abiram. Remember, they're from Reuben. They're not Kohathites. 
They're from Reuben, also on the south side of the tabernacle. And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. And they said, we will not come up. That's an interesting response. You know, he's called them to come to the tabernacle. And uh, the time will come where they're to bring their instruments, the the censuses, the uh, censuses, the uh, censors. A lot of censuses already in numbers. That's the first thing that came out. A censor. And they say, we will not come up. And I wonder why. You know, it doesn't tell us here what they're concerned about. They want the acts of priestly roles. And Moses says, well, why don't you come? But perhaps the words of Moses to the group and the challenge starts to seem a bit intimidating or concerning because in the lives of these Israelites, and not even that long ago, but a bit over a year earlier, when the tabernacle was established, Nadab and Abihu were struck dead by offering what was unauthorized. They were sons of Aaron. Two, two sons of Aaron. These aren't even sons of Aaron. And Moses says, well, why don't you go ahead and take up the censers? And they might be thinking, okay, this is getting maybe a little too real. All right, they're wanting us to approach the tabernacle and start to be priests. So we wonder, you know, what's in their mind at the moment? We will not come up, they say. Um, In verse 13, is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Now, Dathan and Abiram are still talking, but I want you to look very carefully at the wording. They do use this phrase of a land flowing with milk and honey. But what's the direction? It tells us in verse 13, you brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey. Oh, wait a second here. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Brought us up out of a land. You know, we would have called that Egypt, the land of slavery and bondage. But Dathan and Abiram demonstrate their faulty thinking as if Moses has brought them out of the land of milk and honey. Whoa. I mean, this is so outrageous that you think, how can you even say that out loud with a straight face? You were in bondage in Egypt. You're talking about that land as if it's milk and honey. And then you're being, you're being led here to die. You're to kill us in the wilderness, Moses. Now, of course, God has made clear I brought you out that you might worship me, know me, come to the inherited land in the land of Canaan. But they say in verse 13, is it too small a thing that you brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey? It's interesting how the responses sometimes use the words of a previous speaker against them. And here earlier, Moses had said to Korah, is it too small a thing that God gave you these roles? And they say to Moses, is it a small thing that you brought us up out of the land of uh, flowing with milk and honey, the land of Egypt, only to kill us in the wilderness? Have they no sense of the promises and the covenant? Have they no continuity with the patriarchs of longing for that land of promise that he swore to their forefathers? And then they say of Moses in verse 13, that you would make yourself a prince over us. That language did appear earlier in the Old Testament. It tells us in the book of Exodus that Moses came across in Exodus 2. He found two Hebrews who were struggling together. And it tells us in Exodus chapter 2, they were struggling. And he says to one of those men, why do you strike your companion? And they answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and he thought, well, surely the thing is known. Because again, Moses had killed an Egyptian in an earlier moment in a story. And then among the two Hebrews, when he's trying to reconcile these conflicting tense brothers, one of them says, who made you a prince over us? Um, makes you wonder if, uh, if that earlier guy was Dathan or Abiram. I mean, it doesn't say, but you just start thinking, all right, this is the same language 
from a guy directed to Moses. I bet Moses is like, hey, you're still saying this, are you? You're still saying this all these years later. But uh, who knows? Who knows? It's not clear. Other than to say, Moses, why are you acting presumptively in your leadership? As if Moses is the leader of Israel by self-appointment. It's quite outrageous indeed. In verse 14, moreover, they say to him, you've not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. The boldness and the arrogance of verse 14 is also striking to the reader. You've not brought us up into a land flowing with milk and honey. Okay, well then let's review what's happened. Why is it that over time, these Israelites are not entering the land flowing with milk and honey. Because in Numbers 13 and 14, they rejected it. They said, we can't go up into that land. Caleb said, let's go up at once and occupy it. And they said, oh, we can't go. We're going to die. Our wives, our children, they'll be demolished. We'll be a prey to all the giants of the land. And so they rejected the promised land. And now they say to Moses, you haven't let us into it. I mean, these are, these are people who lack a kind of self-reflection and introspection spiritually that would do them good. And they are simply blaming Moses when God's divine judgment has spoken. You, you wonder, have they been paying any attention to anything that's been going on to be able to say these kinds of words to Moses? And then at the end of verse 14, an idiom is used with their question, will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. This is a Hebrew idiom which means to hoodwink somebody, or we might say to pull the wool over someone's eyes. So he's saying, are you going to put out the eyes of these men like they can't see what you're doing? Moses, we're on to you. We see. You're not going to hoodwink us. You're not going to pull the wool over our eyes. You're, you've exalted yourself, you and Aaron. And so they, they think Moses is not rightfully where he should be. And that Aaron is not rightfully where he should be. And that while other people might be fooled by you, Moses, you're going to try to put out their eyes so that they're like blind people following you. That's not going to be the case for us. We see what you're doing. He said, they say, we will not come up. Well, verse 15 is understandable. Moses was very angry. I mean, this is a, this is a terrible turn of events. And this is not the first time where Moses has had to deal with rebellion among the tribes to a degree that is like a spiritual virus spreading in the camp that you don't want catching with other people. He says to the Lord, do not respect their offering. I've not taken one donkey from them. I've not harmed one of them. Uh, he, he is assuring his blamelessness with regard to them. But should they come to the tabernacle to offer incense? He is praying that the Lord would recognize the wickedness of these men and not receive anything they would offer, but make clear that they do not belong to the Lord and that Aaron and the priesthood have been rightly chosen. So Moses' prayer is toward that end. Verses 16 and following, he says to Korah, Be present, you, all your company before the Lord, you and they and Aaron, tomorrow. And Aaron. Ah, that's interesting. So, we're going to see, will the real priest show himself? Will the real high priest and the one who rightly holds the office? We will see whose censor the Lord honors. Be present tomorrow. Every one of you take his censer in verse 17, put incense in it. Every one of you bring it before the Lord his censer. 250 censers. You also and Aaron each his censer. You have over 250 censers. Over 250 people gathering, okay? This is quite a... It, it can remind you in some ways of Elijah and the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel where, l l let us see, the real 
God over against Baal whom you worship. God will show what is true. Here in verse 18, they take every, they, every man takes the censer, puts fire in it, lays incense on it, and stands at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. And I think we're to imply that this is that next morning, okay? Verse 19, Korah assembles all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Now, the last time the glory of the Lord appeared, it was in the form of a cloud of uh, a pillar of cloud at the front of the tabernacle, where in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, he displayed his displeasure with the people's rebellion and a pronouncement of judgment. If that at all hangs in their memory, which it should, if they have a sense of the last time the Lord appeared in the, in the pillar of cloud, it was with words of judgment. They would surely see how serious their words and actions are. Verse 20 says, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. And he said, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, oh God, the God of the spirits of all flesh. Shall one man sin and you be angry with all the congregation? I think Moses and Aaron are seeing that Korah bears a kind of responsibility here. That they don't want to see the whole congregation suffer for. I think when they mention the sin of that one man, Korah is who they have in mind. More so than Dathan and Abiram. More so than that man On, who we've not heard of since verse 1. More so than any of them, Korah, who's named first in verse 1. And whom Moses speaks to over and over again. It says that in verse 20, separate yourselves, the Lord says. In other words, he's going to spare Moses and Aaron, but he will judge the rebels. And Moses and Aaron begin to intercede and they pray for mercy. And in verse 23, the Lord says, say to the congregation, get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And I want you to notice the mercy that is there. The Lord is saying, I think, let's draw a line in the sand. Turn from Korah and his wicked ways and plans side with the Lord. And, and, and I think putting it this way in words of Moses to the congregation is to appeal to them, choose life and not death. It's as if Moses is setting before them, here's life and here is death. Here is the Lord and here is Korah. The Lord is going to pour out judgment. Get away from the dwellings of Korah. Now here they are on the south side, right? The dwellings of Korah and, uh, and those Reubenites that have been mentioned. And Moses is saying to the people, you get away from this region. Judgment's coming. This is, this is, in a way, giving them the opportunity to turn and repent. To show themselves by their very movement of their feet who they will side with. Even if earlier they felt fickle. Even if earlier it wasn't incredibly clear. The Lord in the pillar of cloud is speaking. And they need to leave Korah. They should not side with him. Verse 25 says, Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram. And the elders of Israel followed. And he spoke to the congregation saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men. And touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away from all their sins. Which means that not only to the Kohathites, but to the Reubenites, Moses and Aaron, they are going there in person. And they are pleading with the people, please depart. There there is a time given to them. This is not a rash and sudden judgment. He's saying, leave the tents of the wicked. 
Leave this region where judgment will come. You have time. Don't stay. The Lord's anger has been kindled and wrath will fall. And it tells us elders of Israel went with Moses and Dathan. And uh, Moses rose and went to them and elders of Israel followed him. He calls them wicked men in verse 26. And he says, don't even touch anything of theirs. It's as if their lives are so contaminated with their spiritual toxic posture toward the Lord in their hearts. Don't even come in contact with them, lest what they believe become what you believe. You'll be swept away with their sins. Verse 27 says, so, look at the response here. They got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. You know what ends up happening? Israelites on the south side of the camp begin to move. This is good. They're heeding the warnings of God through his servant Moses. And Moses said, depart, and they do. They get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents together with wives, sons, and little ones. Verses 28 to 30 is a prophecy of a unique judgment. Moses says, hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me. To do all these works. In other words, they've seen Moses' influence, his leadership, his authority, and they've said, I don't really understand if the whole congregation's holy, why you're so special and exalted yourself. Moses says, I'm going to make a prophecy. And this is going to show you that the Lord has sent me to do the works that I've done. And here's the sign. In verse 29, if these men die as all men die, I think that means a natural death. Or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, that is the natural death there, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know these men have despised the Lord. What will set apart Moses visibly in the mind as the, vin- the one who's been vindicated, and the one who is rightly appointed to lead, the one who is rightly given the authority and signs in the midst of the people, who's rightly the mouthpiece of the Lord for the Israelites, it will be this prophecy fulfilled. Will Moses be a false prophet or a true? And he says, look, if I prophesy the death of these people and they don't die, but rather die of old age, die immediately of, or death uh, naturally at some point, then I haven't been sent. But if the ground opens up and swallows these people, you will know by the Lord's own demonstration that I have been sent by the Lord. Now, Sheol here is a word that can be used to refer to the life after death. Sometimes in the Old Testament, it it seems to denote just the grave. Um, There's some complexities in in this uh, that Old Testament scholars have to try to sort through and interpreters can trip on this word Sheol. How should we think about it? I'm going to suggest that in this reading of verse 30, we should see Sheol as the grave or representing the death in which they will enter very soon. And in verse 31, as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. The sound of splitting earth began to fill the air. And it says the earth opened its mouth. How's that for personification? Viewing the earth as having jaws, a mouth that is taking into them, taking them in like swallowing food, their households, the people who belong to Korah, all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished 
from the midst of the assembly. Now, this is quite shocking. But the Lord has said to the Israelites, depart from these wicked people. So those who stayed to support Korah wanted to align themselves against the Lord's anointed priest and leader Moses and therefore oppose the Lord. And to oppose the Lord is to choose judgment. Moses had said, I'm going to set before you life and death, and they have chosen death. They are receiving what they have chosen. Moses had said, if the earth opens up and swallows you. This was advance notice and warning. They did not repent. They stayed. And as soon as Moses finished speaking those words, the ground opened up. Now it tells us in the spy story of Numbers 13, the rebels in Israel's camp said that Canaan was too intimidating a place to enter. And one of the expressions they said Canaan, Canaan devours its inhabitants. Numbers 13, 32. But what happens to those rebels later now in number 16? The wilderness opens up and devours those who have aligned themselves against Yahweh. Now something you need to know that's in Numbers 26 is it tells us in Numbers 26 and in verse Nine, the sons of Eliab were Nemuel, Dathan, and Abiram. These are the Dathan and Abiram chosen from the congregation who contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah when they contended against the Lord. And then the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. Numbers 26 is reflecting on that. But here's what else I want you to hear. But the sons of Korah did not die. Verse 11. The sons of Korah did not die. Why? Because when people were urged to depart and to side with the Lord, they left their father's tent. And I can't imagine that was easy. And they did not perish when the earth opened up. Numbers 26.11 says they did not die. They did not experience that judgment. We're then told back in number 16, 34, all Israel who were around them fled at their cry. For they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. So Moses is shown with his true prophecy to be the prophet in the midst of people, the mouthpiece and leader of the Lord. And what about those who wanted to act as priests at the tabernacle? They're struck dead. Moses is the rightful prophet. And Aaron is the priest of Israel. Not any of these posers who want to act as if Moses and Aaron are self-appointed. And they can rebel against the Lord with impunity and without consequence. Fire of the Lord came and consumed them. In other words, what happened for Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10... Those were two people. Now it happens on a scope of hundreds of people are killed by the fire of the Lord in judgment. They refused to repent. They refused to leave the plans and designs of Korah. And therefore the earth swallows others up. Fire of the Lord consumes the census holder. The, uh, there I go again. The censor holders. And um, in verses 36 and following, 
what's going to happen to all those censers? Well, they have been brought to the tabernacle for holy work. And even though Nadab and Abihu were struck down earlier in Leviticus 10, even though these hundreds of people are struck down, these remaining instruments that were to be used for incense from the bronze altar here, they're going to have a a particular outcome. Look in verse 36. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Tell Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, to take up the censers out of the blaze, then scatter the fire far and wide. For they, these censers, have become holy. Because, see, they've become in contact with the holy vessels. And these censers didn't have to be from a particular tribe like the priests. The censers with this work are now set apart. And so they're going to be, in verse 38, given a special role. As for the censers of these men who sinned at the cost of their lives, let them, these censers, be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar. This is the bronze altar. For they offered them before the Lord and they became, these censers did, they became holy. The people holding them didn't become holy. They would have been illegitimate priests. They weren't even from Aaron. It wouldn't have worked. But the instruments themselves are going to have a further purpose beyond the death of those 250 chiefs. So despite whatever sinful motives led those people to grab those censers and head to the tabernacle, these censers will be used to make a hammered covering of bronze over that altar in the court. Verse 39 says, Eliezer the priest took the bronze censers. Now you might wonder, well, Eliezer, who is he again? Well, Aaron has two remaining sons. Nadab and Abihu are dead, but two others are Eliezer and Ithamar. Eliezer is going to have to go to the place where dead bodies are. And he's going to have to take censers out of the blaze. And eventually those bodies are going to have to be dealt with. And it seems that Eliezer, Aaron's son, is dispensed with this task in order to preserve the high priest of Israel from becoming unclean through such contact. That's, the, that's a, a plausible reason here. So Eliezer the priest, in verse 39, takes the censers, which those who were burned had offered, and they were hammered out as a covering of the altar to be a reminder to the people of Israel so that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord, lest he become like Korah and his company, as the Lord said to him through Moses. That's a lot to happen in a day. I wonder after everybody slept that night what they'd do the next morning. I wonder, if, I wonder if the lessons of the previous day would be so upon their mind that nothing unthinkable would happen. Well, let's see. Verse 41, on the next day, all the congregation of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And they say, You have killed the people of the Lord. (laughs) I mean, if you're Moses and Aaron, listen, your patience is not as steadfast as the Lord's. You're definitely not as slow to anger as the Lord is. But this complaint, considering what has just taken place the day before, you have killed them. Wait a second. Did fire come from Moses? Did Aaron bring down fire from his censer? Who killed the people? So they say to Moses and Aaron, you have killed the people of Israel. One writer puts it this way. You would have expected Israel to have repented, returned to the Lord, accepted the leadership placed over them, once again affirmed gladly and without reservation. Moses is our prophet. Aaron is our high priest. You are chosen of God. We will follow you. In verse 42, when the congregation had assembled against Moses. And you must can't even believe you're reading these words. 
And he turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And the Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And we're not surprised here, Moses and Aaron, what do they do? They fall on their faces. And they come again to intercede for the rebellious Israelites who continue to grumble and turn. And they want the Lord to spare them with mercy. And Moses says to Aaron, take your censer. Well, Aaron's censer was not hammered out. Aaron didn't perish. Aaron's a high priest. Take your censer, put fire on it from the altar. Lay incense on it. And carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. A plague has begun. Moses has learned apparently that we can see by implication here. That the Lord's judgment has already begun to fall among other rebellious Israelites. We don't know, we're not told what the plague consisted of. But the plagues are words that are associated with Egyptian bondage, you know. He judges Egypt for their uh, recalcitrance and for Pharaoh's uh, hardness of heart. And the Israelites are delivered in redemption and are taken toward a promised land through a Red Sea and Sinai revelations and all these glorious things. When it says that the Lord brings plague to the Israelites, we think, my goodness, it's as if they are unbelieving Egyptians instead of Israelites in the heart. So this plague begins to erupt. And Moses tells Aaron to take your censer and run. I want you to go. Take your censer and carry it quickly to the congregation. So this means he's to leave the tabernacle precincts. And the symbolism of the censer and the smoke coming from it. I think it's to symbolize the prayers of intercession. Will Aaron say, all right, a plague has begun. Let it do his work. I'm going home. I'm clocking out. Uh, He doesn't do that. Instead, this plague seems to stir within Moses and Aaron exactly what ought to be stirred by the Lord in Moses and Aaron. That they intercede faithfully for the people and that the high priest mediate in the presence of the Lord and the people. And Aaron here will do the work of a high priest. That's what we see. So in verse 47, Aaron took it as Moses said, and he ran. How old is Aaron? Well, he's three years older than Moses. Moses is approximately 81 at least at this point. Aaron is in his mid-80s. And you see this man in his mid-80s with a censer of fire and smoke. And he is moving. He is fleeing the tabernacle. He is running into the midst of the people. And I think it's, I think it's wonderful when it says here in verse 47, Behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. He begins to engage as an intercessor. And how beautiful is verse 48. And he stood between the dead and the living. Aaron here stands between those who have been falling under the judgment of God. And those whom he has come to intercede for that they might receive the mercy of God. And he stands in the midst and the plague was Stopped. That's incredible, isn't it? A beautiful expression. What is Aaron's role as a high priest? To stand between. That's what the priests do. They come between the righteous God and those who are the unrighteous. 
And here judgment has been breaking out in the camp. Dead are present. And Aaron the high priest comes in the midst. And he stands between the living and the dead. And the plague stops. In verse 49. Now those who died in the plague. 14,700. Besides those who died in the affair of Korah. Well if we do a little bit of addition here. 250 chiefs. Got a few more figures like Korah, Dathan, Abiram. You're approaching 15,000 people in 24 hours. 15,000 people. Those are small cities. 15,000 people in less than 24 hours, all of whom despised the Lord, rebelled against His prophet and His high priest, wanted nothing to do with His commands, sided with the tents of wickedness. They sowed rebellion and reaped Judgment. They didn't want the Lord, His words, or the life of the covenant. They called the bondage land the land of milk and honey. So in verses 49 and 50, when we read about a plague that had broken out, and then a plague that has stopped, and then an Aaron in verse 50 returns to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped, we read about the Lord demonstrating judgment that is righteous. The Lord never does what is unrighteous. This is righteous judgment in the camp. Not only does He show judgment, He shows mercy. What do the people need for the mercy of God to be received? They need a faithful intercessor who will stand between. Because the people deserve judgment. And the intercessor on their behalf acts that they might receive mercy. And friends, I'm telling you, can't you see the gospel echoes here? It's a wonderful thing where the Lord Jesus stands between sinners and the second death condemnation which we deserve. In other words, he stands as the one who rightly intercedes for the people and the judgment of God satisfied on the cross. I told you earlier from Numbers 26 that the sons of Korah didn't die, but the incident of Korah himself, his rebellion, it's used later in the New Testament, not just in the Old. In the book of Jude, There is a line that talks about the false teachers who should predict judgment for their future because they're misleading the people of God. They're using the words and teachings about Jesus for licentious, rebellious living. And Jude says, woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Now you say, well, wait, Korah's rebellion, that was a long time earlier from the days of Jude in the New Testament. Well, that's true. We're looking about first century Roman Empire with Jude. But much earlier, Korah's rebellion, it represented people who rejected the teaching and leadership of the appointed prophet and priest and wanted the power and authority for themselves, but not to obey the Lord. They rejected the promised land. For them, Egypt was the land of milk and honey. And therefore... Those false teachers in Jude's day, they remind him of Korah and his rebels. And just as Korah and his rebels face the judgment of God, so should all those who twist and pervert the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ expect to perish like Korah did. Not because the earth will open beneath them in physical death, but because what is worse will come. A second death. And the only hope for the rebels who are sinners is to turn to the one who stands between the dead and the living, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about the sons of Korah before we close. You know, Korah, not only did his sons survive, the descendants of Korah become psalmists. 
There are 12 psalms written by the sons of Korah. Now, these are not his immediate children. Sometimes when you read of sons, it's like Christ being the son of David. We're talking about a descendant, okay? So in the unfolding of history, when people are writing praise to the Lord, 12 psalms are written from descendants of Korah. They did not share their ancestors' wickedness and unbelief and rejection of the covenant. They sang the praises of God. Psalm 42 is the first one we notice. Psalm 42 and 43. And then you read chapter 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, 49, all written by sons of Korah. 42 to 49 is a line of psalms from the descendants of an Israelite rebel. And then you read in Psalm 84, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And here's what they say in Psalm 84.10. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And I tell you, when you read number 16 and you listen to the descendants of Korah say that, it takes on an even richer significance because their ancestor embodied the tents of wickedness. And they'd say, I'd rather be a doorkeeper than with such wickedness. Psalm 85, 87, 88, all examples of the sons of Korah's superscription. And then in Psalm 88, the last one written by the sons of Korah. It says in Psalm 88.3, My soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. And I'm counted among those who go down into the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one let loose from the dead. You have put me in the depths of the pit in the regions dark and deep. He's talking there about the circumstances of life that have overcome these as image bearers around them. Yet calling out, praying, and trusting in the Lord in the midst of the darkness. And to trust the Lord and to seek the Lord in the midst of such circumstances is better than their ancestor who refused the Lord, rejected the Lord, and descended into the literal heart of the earth. I tell you what's good news about this as well is that the sons of Korah were not destined to go the way of their ancestor just because they were his descendants. And even though Korah's literal sons grew up in his tent, they did not perish when the earth opened up. And I take that to mean because they were no longer found in the presence of that tent. And I tell you some encouragement we can get from this. I don't know what your upbringing was. What your parents were like spiritually and, uh, and, uh, and, and physically and what your ancestry looks like as you start to trace it back. But you can be one who fears and follows the Lord, even if your dad didn't, even if your mom didn't, and even if your ancestors didn't. You can be someone who fears and follows and loves the Lord. Just look at the sons of Korah. Let's pray.